Hi, I'm Max. And I'm Zan, and welcome to this week's Fly in the Wall episode. Today we will be speaking with Kristen Soltis Anderson. Kristen is one of our Spring 2022 GU Politics Fellows and is a Republican pollster who has been featured on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and Real Time with Bill Maher. She is a regular contributor to the Washington Examiner and has won numerous awards, including 2016 L's Most Compelling Woman in Washington and 2013 Times 30 Under 30 Changing the World. And before we get started with the interview with Kristen Soltis Anderson, make sure to follow us on social media. We have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and our handle is at flyinthewallpod. We love hearing from you, so feel free to message us at our email, flyinthewall at georgetown.edu. Without further ado, let's dive into the conversation with Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Our first question for you has to do with your book and millennials just in general, and we want to know what drew you to politics and specifically millennial voting. I got very interested in politics when I was in high school. I was following somewhat casually the 2000 presidential election and that primary on the Republican side was between George W. Bush and John McCain. It was pretty exciting, Uh, really interesting. McCain was this maverick and I, I was just so interested in following that that it got me into the world of the debate team at my high school and that was really the beginning of my interest in all things political. I went to college, majored in political science at the University of Florida and then moved to Washington after graduation to work in, in a political field. Um, I started out pretty early in my career, made my way into the polling industry. But something that I noticed that was a little strange is that when I was in high school and even when I was in college, being really interested in politics and policy made me a little bit unusual among my friends. Um, by the time I made it to Washington and you were approaching, say, the 2008 presidential election, I noticed that a lot of my friends from high school, from college, who had not been interested in politics before at all, suddenly were very engaged. Um, they thought that Barack Obama was really inspirational. They they wanted to vote. They cared. But then they had questions for me about, well, Kristen, how can you be Republican? You seem so nice and normal. And I thought, well, this is a little alarming, right? That it used to be being just interested in politics at all was the thing that had made me weird. Now that's normal, but now actually leaning right of center on some issues is, is what is confusing to some of my friends. And so I wanted to start understanding, well, is that always the case that for people who are younger or just getting interested in politics, that they start off more progressive and then as they get older, they become more conservative or their views wind up shifting in in the broad spectrum of things. And so I started studying this while I was in grad school. Um, and wrote my master's thesis all about this topic. And what I found was that a lot of the conventional wisdom about my generation, the millennial generation, was wrong. Um, So that really began my journey of trying to become one of the biggest experts on the youth vote. Now, of course, millennials, we are no longer the youth vote, right? We are, there are are people a little bit older than me who still count as millennials, and they are older than 40 years old. So that's not, there's no definition of youth vote that would (laughs) include them. Um, and now it's it's Generation Z. It's it's your generation that is the one that is um, the focus of most study of the youth vote. There are some parallels. There are some distinctions. Millennials and Gen Z are not the same. Um, and there's also a lot of debate about where that dividing line is and how arbitrary is it. But nevertheless, um, I do think there's a big shift in the political views of those who 
really first came of age thinking about politics in the Obama or post-Obama era and those before. Um, And it also kind of coincides with those who came of age in an era where the internet was pretty much a norm and those who came before. Um, so this has been a topic that I've continued to be interested in studying, um, and but really things are constantly changing because you've always got new people, new young people who are entering the political conversation. Gotcha. That's super interesting to learn about. Um, so one thing I want to clarify for the viewers is that um, on your bio and everything, you consider yourself a Republican pollster. So I'm curious, what does it mean to be a Republican pollster? How does um, you know partisan affiliation impact you know the kind of work you do or your polling methodology or is being a Republican pollster simply being a pollster that you know votes Republican? It's a great question and it's one I get a lot because a lot of folks will read Republican pollster and they think that that either means that I only study Republicans, which isn't true, gotcha. or that I come at questions kind of intentionally looking for an answer that will make Republicans happy, which is also not the case. (laughs) Um, Being a Republican pollster means when you work in most fields in politics, not all, but most, you kind of have to pick a team. Um, There are some polling outlets, things like the Pew Research Center, Gallup, that are purely nonpartisan, and a lot of the work that they do is just for the public interest or to the extent they're working for private clients, they're working for, you know, nonpartisan corporations. But if you're going to work for advocacy groups or for campaigns, you kind of have to pick red or blue. And so for me, as I mentioned, you know, when I first got interested in politics, it was being really interested in John McCain's campaign in 2000. And so I've always gravitated a little bit to the right. So working on the Republican side was more of the the natural fit. Um, There will be times where I will partner up with a Democratic pollster, but it's not necessarily because on my own I would be doing biased research. It's more it's one good to have someone who can check your biases for things that you don't realize you have. There may be ways Republicans talk about an issue that we don't even realize a Democrat would never think about the issue that way. And so having a Democratic pollster you partnered with can help check those biases, but it also gives you credibility on the other side of the aisle. There will always be skepticism of if someone knows you mostly work for Republicans, well, are you releasing data that is just favorable to that point of view we shouldn't be it's not in our interest to do so because it's in our interest to be accurate and to be right of course um but you know sometimes having a partner that is from the other side of the aisle just lends that additional credibility and so while i would probably not be able to get a meeting in speaker pelosi's office to (laughs) present a survey my democratic counterpart might and and vice versa very cool And just generally, can you explain what a pollster does and maybe on a typical day or week and how do professional pollsters and news contributors, like how do those two roles intersect? Sure. Being a pollster is a lot of fun, but in my view, it's also a really big responsibility because my job is to go out and accurately assess what people are thinking and feeling and then report on that in a statistically rigorous way, either to my clients or when I I go on, you know, various shows in, in the media. So being a pollster day to day means that, you know, any given morning I show up to my desk and I'm working on what what is our questionnaire going to look like for the survey? What are the most important things to ask? Um, how are we contacting people? Do we have a sample that looks like it's accurate and representative demographically of who we're trying to study? Um, it might involve sifting through the results and trying to pick out what are the key findings. You know, any given survey we do, you're going to have 40, 50 questions. You can slice and dice those 
you know, any number of ways. You'll have tons of, of numbers to look at. And I'm trying to find, okay, what are the 15 to 20 numbers here that most effectively tell an accurate story about what people are thinking? The way that intersects with the media side of things, and I'm a, a political analyst for CNN, for instance, is it means when I go on air, I'm really trying not to keep the focus on my own views. If you ask me, for instance, Kristen, what do you think about what's going on in Ukraine? I have plenty of opinions. <laughs> and, you know, hanging out with my friends, I'd be more than happy to voice them. But when I'm on air, what I think makes me a little bit different is instead of having my own view be the front and center thing that I talk about is I try to say look the American people think x they think we should apply maximum economic pressure to Vladimir Putin but they're nervous about having American troops directly engage with Russian troops something like that whatever my my data finds and I think that enables me to be someone who's often not involved in the shouting matches and food fights you can see on on television um, and I, I'm trying to always add something to the discussion people can't get elsewhere, perspective that's outside of their bubble and that can inform why are politicians doing what they're doing? Why have they decided to support X but not Y? If you know that the public to whom elected officials are accountable in a democracy feel a certain way, that can let you know what policymakers might do mov moving forward. Gotcha. So... Um, on, on the topic of polling, I feel like, you know, after 2016 and 2020, there's this kind of, you know, hesitancy or skepticism of polling. Um, and I'm curious, as you know, as a pollster, what do you feel that, you know, the average person, like, thinks incorrectly about polling or, you know, something that, you know, that we don't quite understand about how the polling industry operates, you know, you think it'd be important for, you know, a podcast listener or just anyone on the street, you know, understand, have a better idea of, you know, what's really going on behind the numbers. There's been a big change in the public perception of the polling industry since 2016. It used to be that, you know, if I was going on a business trip somewhere and I'd get in an Uber at an airport and they asked me, you know, oh, tell me what you do. I could say, oh, I'm a, I'm a pollster. I'm coming from Washington, D.C. And <laughs> since the 2016 election, I had changed that to say, well, I'm a researcher based in Virginia, <laughs> which is also accurate. My office is in Virginia. Um, and I am a researcher, but it's a little less loaded and it, it opens the door to fewer, you know, uh, hot button questions and, and a less contentious ride from the airport to wherever I'm going. Uh, when somebody says, look, I think the polls are broken or I don't trust the polls. I I'm, don't think that it's helpful to come at them and say, well, like, why don't you trust the data? Um, or or what have you, because I understand more than most all of the things that can go wrong in polling. Um, response rates to telephone surveys back in like the late 90s were in like the 30-some percent, which isn't great, but the good news was that the 36% of people who were taking surveys were demographically not so different from the 64% who were not. With the the broad exception of those folks who take surveys are more likely to be civically engaged. So if you're a political pollster, that's actually not a bad bias. It means you're more likely getting the types of people who are likely to vote and so on and so forth. Um, but then by the time you get to like the mid 2010s, that response rate number has fallen to the single digits. And at a certain point, those folks demographically really don't look exactly like who you're expecting. If you're only calling landline f phones, for instance, you're getting way too many senior citizens and not enough young people. If you're only doing an online survey, 
Um, there can be challenges with that as well. I do a lot of online research at my firm, Echelon Insights, but we always know we've got to be careful that we're not getting a sample that is too educated and frankly, in some cases, too young, that we need to make sure that we're getting senior citizens and so on. So there are big challenges with every type of way you can conduct surveys. And when people say things like, well, I've never gotten contacted for a poll or, you know, I would I don't pick up numbers that I don't know. You know, I, I say you're not alone. That Most people are like you. The good news is there are a lot of people who are like you in every way, except they do pick up numbers that they don't know and they still do take surveys. Um, and polling, we know, isn't totally broken because we still have a lot of cases where the polls have gotten it pretty close. Um, I'll, I will toot my own firm's horn for a second and say we almost perfectly nailed the governor's race in Virginia last year, saying we thought Youngkin was going to win by, I think we had it two or three points, and he wound up winning by like 1.5, something like that. Um, so polling's not broken entirely, but the problem is there are some folks that talk about polls with a greater degree of certainty than they should. They'll say, oh, last month, you know, Biden was at 42 and now he's at 44% job approval. His job approval has gone up. Well, maybe, or maybe that's statistical noise, but that kind of uncertainty doesn't really sell in the media. It doesn't drive clicks saying maybe this means something and maybe it doesn't, but that's the more honest way I think to talk about polls. And that's a big challenge that I face is I always try to go in with that candor about the level of uncertainty, but sometimes it's just hard to get that to translate across in a quick cable news segment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's actually really interesting to hear about. And something that's a little more um, topical that I've been hearing about and reading about lately is that there are some issues with like the 2020 census and there's some debates on both sides of the aisle about that. How do you um, like conceptualize this issue? Sure. So the census is a really valuable tool for researchers like me because ultimately the way we are deciding is my sample balanced appropriately? Are, are we getting the right demographic representation? I have to have a benchmark to match it against. And the census provides the gold standard data for that. Now, the decennial census, the one they do every 10 years that is constitutionally mandated, the only thing that it is supposed to be doing is counting the number of people in the country. Everything else on top of that is extra. Everything on top of that is gravy. Um, the problem is the more extra things you're asking that census to do, the to what extent are you compromising that core mission of just counting people? And so, for instance, asking questions about immigration status, asking questions about race, asking questions about all sorts of other things can provide a researcher like me with tons of good information um, and be really important. But it might also mean that someone is more reluctant to take the census. They wind up not being counted. It winds up being more of an onerous process. And this time around, there were real concerns about um, the privacy of people's individual data. For researchers like me to be able to access census data, you can get extremely granular information about, you know, this block in this city has this many people in it and they are of this race or this age. And there were some, you know, concerns that to what extent does that violate people's privacy? Does it take the census too far away from that core mission of we're just counting people? Um, the flip side, though, is that the way the Census Bureau has tried to counteract this is sort of by injecting a little bit of fake news into the data that they release and that in the end it all balances out, right? So if they take one 18-year-old uh, African-American person from this block and they move them three blocks over, 
you know, they're not taking them out of the count. They're just making it less obvious that, like, this is who lives on this block. Um, but the problem is that kind of analysis leads – or that attempt at protecting people's privacy, does it go too far and actually make the data we're getting useless? Um, so this is – there's a lot of tension a- around – to what extent is the, what is the true mission of the census and to what extent is it important to focus on protecting privacy at the expense of the census being able to serve some of those missions that we've handed to it and that's some really interesting analysis of the census that i had never heard before and i think that brings up a lot of good you know questions on statistics and methodology um, i kind of want to hop into your own personal area of research so um, i think the old adage goes uh you know, if you're not a like a liberal when you're younger, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're older, you have no brain. I think every college student has probably heard it. You know, you'll be a conservative by your 30. And I'm curious how your re- research on you know millennial voting patterns, um, how that um, you know comments upon that adage, and I guess the trends you're finding with uh, the youth vote. Sure. So I have found that in general that adage does not hold up to strict scrutiny that for many in say the baby boomer generation Mm -hmm. that is a little bit of what their journey looked like maybe they started off progressive protesting the vietnam war what have you and then as they got older and as they went through the reagan revolution now they find themselves a bit older and a bit with more with views that we would consider conservative today now some of the question is is it that they have changed or is it that the things they believed when they were younger used to be considered yeah. progressive and now are considered conservative, all society things speaking? Has society <laughs> moved to the left broadly rather than the individuals? But, but nevertheless, you know, what I find for Generation X is that they kind of came of age more during the Reagan, Bush, and then kind of or Bush 41 and then Clinton era. And they still to this day lean a bit more to the right, that these things that happened when they were first politically coming of age had a really strong impression on them. Meanwhile, for younger Americans who kind of came of age during the Obama or Trump era, they tend to be more progressive, even just starting out. Um, Looking at millennials, you don't really see that millennials have moved hugely to the right as they have gotten older. And to the extent you've seen movement, there, there's a question of, is it individual people changing their views, going, you know, I used to be a Democrat, but now I'm a Republican? Or is it that more people, as they get older, get involved in the process? And that those who are the most engaged when they are early in their 20s are more progressive, while those who might be a little more personally conservative just kind of sit things out and go about their day, and they don't really enter the process and start voting until they're 30 or 40? That's another hypothesis. But broadly, millennials are still a relatively democratic-leaning generation, Generation Z as well. And even though I see in a lot of polls a lot of dissatisfaction with Joe Biden and a lot of, I don't know if I'm going to vote for Democrats in the midterms, that does not mean that they have become Republicans. It more just means they've become disillusioned and are, are beginning to step away. Mm-hmm. Got that. And um, do you see any generational differences between millennials and other generations, maybe specifically like us, Gen Z, probably most of the listeners? One of the differences that I see is around views on what's the best way to get change done. And these aren't huge differences, but that for millennials, they're a little more likely to think of themselves as resilient, um, 
we've been through a lot. We put our heads down. We adapted. We got through it. We got through the financial crisis. We got through the Trump era and all of the turbulence and polarization that came with that. And um, if we want to get things done, we try to be pragmatic and just like work together with others to, to solve things. Kind of this Obama era. Let's all, you know, reach across the aisle and try to find consensus. I find for generations either much more likely to view things as warfare, um, that the, the other side is wrong, is morally wrong, and is uh, they're more willing to sort of view the other side not as a force to be compromised with, but to be de fully defeated. Um, and they're less interested in, uh, l let me adapt to this problem I see, and are more interested in saying, let me eliminate this problem that I see. So while for millennials, there there's maybe a little bit more of a, uh, I don't want to say moderate pragmatism, because it's not really what I'm trying to say, but it's that for Generation Z, it's much more, I'm not interested in waiting. I'm going to use my voice, and I'm just going to change things rather than trying to go with the flow. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, you being a pollster, I have to ask some stuff about, you know, upcoming and for upcoming events and forecasts. So I guess uh, it's kind of one question leading into another. Um, the first one is, you know, how has the GOP kind of changed over the decade? You know, I think there's a lot of questions right now where if you were a Republican who had maybe, you know, point for point you agreed with George Bush or Mitt Romney, is this the, still the same party that, you know, you are in? Um, like, how has the GOP changed? And then how do you see those changes, you know, playing out in upcoming years, uh, specifically, you know, this midterm that's coming up where, I mean, the polling data that I've seen looks like, you know, Joe Biden is going to, um, you know, suffer some losses in the House. Um, and one other kind of analysis I'm interested in is specifically, you know, Trump increasing his voting shares within specific minority communities. What does that kind of show about the kind of new GOP, GOP coalition and uh, where it's heading? So I'll, I'll take your first question, which is about, you know, how, how does the Republican Party of today differ from 10 years ago? And I think it it differs in a few ways. I'll start with the things that are the same. So things that are the same include um, being very pro things like defense spending. Mm -hmm. um, it includes being very interested in things like tax cuts. Um, you know, one of the big things that you saw happen during the Trump administration was passing the Trump tax cuts. Uh, and, you know, that for all the talk that Republicans had changed a bit on economic issues, that was a pretty... Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney-ish, you know, type type policy. Um, and then on social issues, you know, I still think that the GOP is a fairly socially conservative party. However, what's different is some of the, the issues that they're focused on. So during the kind of Romney era or the Bush era, the two major social or cultural issues that Republicans talked about a lot were abortion and gay marriage. Um, the Supreme Court kind of took gay marriage off the table with the Supreme Court's decision in, I think it was 2013. Um, and abortion, while it comes up from time to time, and I expect it to be an issue that gets a lot more discussion and debate this summer when the Supreme Court releases um, its decision on the Mississippi law, those have somewhat faded. And you now have these things like talking about um, instruction in schools, Republicans being very frustrated with what they feel is the uh, overuse of critical race theory in schools, those sorts of debates. Those are the topics that social conservatives are more focused on 
relative to what social conservatives talked a lot about 10 or 15 years ago. There was even a lot of pushback. Um, this year's CPAC conference down in Florida, there were no main stage speakers who talked about the issue of abortion whatsoever. And so that, and that was sort of unusual. That would have been like a major mm -hmm. social conservative energizing issue. Economically, you have Republicans talking about things like trade very differently, talking about corporate America very differently. You know, if, if Mitt Romney was branded as being too much the avatar of corporate America, <laughs> now you have Republicans regularly railing against what they view as um, you know, corporations having become too progressive or embracing values that they think are counter to theirs or being too friendly to, say, China, which Republicans are, are quite sort of alarmed about um, you know, the, the role that China plays in the world. So there are some things economically that are different. There are some things socially that are different. And then foreign policy is a big area where in some ways the Republican Party of today looks quite different than it did during the Bush era. Um, you have a lot, particularly of young Republicans, who have come up not with this kind of Cold War mindset that you're starting to actually see some Republicans come back to now that we have Vladimir Putin trying to make the Soviet Union <laughs> yeah. great again. Um but this idea of, well, when, when America projects military power around the world, this is a good thing, that's no longer something that Republicans are uniformly in agreement with. And you even saw some divide around the withdrawal from Afghanistan. A lot saying, hey, this is just something that President Trump had wanted to do that Biden is just carrying out. So f whether it's foreign policy, economics, or social issues, there have been some changes even in the last decade in what sort of mainstream Republican thought focuses on. Um, with some of those changes, that has meant that Republicans have had more of an opportunity to speak to working class voters who may have been a bit turned off by a kind of a free trade, pure free market type position um, and who may not even personally be super evangelical. And so for them, the more sort of religion focused cultural concerns were not as, as at the forefront, um, but who nevertheless are themselves a bit culturally conservative. They are okay with government having a role in trying to address economic imbalances or provide a basic standard of living for, for working class people. And that has meant that Republicans have really shored up more support among, say, non-college educated white voters in the, the Rust Belt. That was a big piece of how Trump won election in 2016. And even has allowed Republicans to speak to more sort of a working class diverse coalition than I think some expected with Trump's improvements in some areas in 2020. Great. Thank you so much for those insights. And at this point, we're going to move on to our lightning round. So the first question we have for you is that we heard you like gardening. What's your favorite thing to grow? I grow hot chili peppers, particularly habaneros. They're very easy to grow, and you can use them in all kinds of cooking. Cool. So uh, this semester, the fellows have had a lot of time in the Baker living room together. Um, what has been your favorite experience so far with the other 2020 fellows? Oh, my goodness. I got kept out of the go-kart office, uh, sat, out <laughs> sat outside of that office with Elliot Williams for like 45 minutes one day, just waiting to get our, our faculty IDs. And that was my first time really getting to bond with anybody else in the class. And we both, I had just recently joined CNN as a contributor. So getting to, to learn the ropes from him, somebody who'd been on air with CNN for a while was, was so rewarding. He's, he's so great. And last question. So y you are currently, um, you know, a fellow with GU Politics. Um, you have, you know, worked at the maybe less uh, nice uh, Institute of Politics at Harvard <laughs> University. So which between the two, 
What are your thoughts? What do you prefer? Oh, the there's a right answer. The, the, <laughs> they're, they're so different because the Harvard Institute of Politics program, you are living up there on campus. So it really does kind of take over your life for a semester. Uh, what was nice about this is that I was able to continue doing all of the things in my professional career while still getting to interact with students constantly, mm-hmm. which meant it, rather than you know being sort of separate and putting my whole job and life on hold, I get to have constant updates on what's going on in my career and life that I can share with students. And so I, I think that's a really great feature of this program. Got it. Well, it sounds like it's Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for interviewing with us. We hope you have a good day. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We hope you enjoyed hearing our conversation with Kristen Soltis Anderson. Make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle's at flyinthewallpod. And as always, you can contact our email, which is flyinthewall at georgetown.edu. See you next week.